0: Hi, I'm Jane Leader, and you're listening to Older Women and Friends. You know, we older women have a lot to say about love, grief, loss, and resilience. We're more comfortable speaking our truth. We've been good scouts and earned our badges, and now it's time to change the perception that the gig is just about up, when in truth, the second wave of the gig has just begun. We are the matriarchs, the women at the top of the food chain, and we've been given the precious gift of passing along the wisdom that we fought so hard for. So let's build a community of older women, women who are strong, self-fulfilled, and a hell of a lot of fun. Hello, well, today, we have the honor of talking for the second time with Lucinda Sykes, who is a retired physician from Toronto, who is now specializing in sleep issues and specifically sleep issues for women 50 plus. Lucinda is here because she is very popular with the listeners of Older Women and Friends. Anytime I speak to someone, they say, well, I've enjoyed everything, but boy, oh boy, that Lucinda Sykes, you've got to have her back. So, Lucinda, you're back. Welcome. Thank you indeed, Jane. I'm very glad to be here. And
1: incidentally, I do thank your audience for your feedback. Uh, It's heartwarming and uh, so glad to speak again.
0: We're very happy to have you speaking again. I want to bring up something that you said at the end of episode four, which, by the way, listeners, you can go to olderwomenandfriends.net and click on episode four, and you can listen for the first time or listen again to Lucinda. Toward the end of my interview with you, I lost complete track of where I was. And I said something like, oh dear, I can't remember what I was saying. And you said something to me that was so heartwarming and that I've been able to take. So when that happens again, what I'm able to think and then what I'm able to say is something like, yes, the brains of older women may be slower, but wisdom is here. And wisdom increases as we age. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about wisdom and women's wisdom, how it develops, why it becomes more important as we age, and any differences, if at all, between women's wisdom and that of men.
1: Thank you, Jane. This is also uh, one of my favorite, shall we say, topics. As uh, you may know, my background is in the psychology of Carl Jung, what we call analytical psychology. And uh, within analytical psychology, a distinguishing characteristic is the uh, psychology's attitude to human development. We're given to understand that we human beings were walking a common path, that in our childhood we had the human experience of childhood. We matured into adult life. We had the concerns of adult life, and those progressed into the concerns of the more mature life, and even eventually into old age. And in a way, we are walking a common path with all of humankind. For thousands and, dare I say, even into millions of years, there is a commonality. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of analytical psychology is its attitude to old age. We are given to understand that as we mature and advance in years, that we are are not falling into decrepitude and loss, but rather, through old age, we are growing in realization of our full potential. And this is a process that continues through life, and uh, Jung, at several points, termed it wisdom, And I think that's very comfortable in just ordinary parlance. We talk about wisdom, but I'm going to switch from analytical psychology and just talk about the word itself, because what the heck do we mean by wisdom? It's an enormous word, and probably everyone's got their own interpretation. Uh, As I often do, I fell back onto the uh, Oxford English Dictionary and checked out the word. And uh, we're given to understand that wisdom is the quality or faculty of being wise. And what the Oxford English Dictionary defines as being wise is having or displaying knowledge and experience and good judgment. Now that's the definition. That's very prosaic, isn't it? Very simple and But we can all get behind it if you think about it. Think about the effects of your experience, your knowledge, and by gosh, you're probably noticing that you're having more and more access to good judgment. And this is our natural heritage as a human being. And Jung put it that this is a, a, the goal of old age, in fact, is the slow but steady access to wisdom.
0: What then does menopause and postmenopause have to do with the development of women's wisdom? Well, that's a fascinating question.
1: In a general way, menopause is, is just one of the steps along the road, it's a transition, if you will, a doorway into what we call the postmenopausal. Years and indeed, now it's the postmenopausal decades. Eventually, that's uh, the years of old age. So, menopause is just one of the steps along the way. Now, there's all manner of biological things occur to us at that time, but uh, eventually, we have passed on. Uh, wisdom is developing for us all the way along. Now, I like, I'm so glad you highlighted. Menopause and the postmenopausal years, because one of my favorite fields of study is anthropology, especially uh, speculating about the process of human evolution, those forces that have been active in giving us our experience of being human, our species, if you will. And one uh, very fine uh, uh, anthropologist, Kristen Hawkes, and her colleagues have for several decades now been investigating the mystery of human menopause. Yeah, it's a biological phenomenon, but from the anthropologist's perspective, we do not understand why menopause is uh, happening to women because in a way it doesn't happen in the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, let me explain. We women anticipate, we expect that in midlife, we will lose our reproductive capacity. We will no longer be having children. But, you know, the uh, chimpanzees don't have that expectation. They remain fertile up until just the last couple of years of life. And that's true throughout the, uh, the great apes, uh, if you think in those terms. And uh, really, through the animal kingdom, so far as uh, the science tells us, Female animals remain fertile up until uh, death. Uh, now, here's a little tip, however, in the world of the uh, cephalopods, the whales, there are species of whales where, by gosh, the females become postmenopausal and they proceed for years, no longer reproducing, but still, very often they are leading their pod, they are the leader. And this is brings me back to what Kristen Dr. Hawks, and her colleagues are speculating, is that there is something of great value in the psychology of the woman after menopause. And the research would tend to back that up. Dr. Hawks spent a year amongst the Hadza people of Tanzania, and she determined that in that nomadic tribe, we would call them hunter-gatherer group, that the um, Senior women were helping the tribe to survive in a very practical way. For example, the grandmothers were helping the grandchildren to survive. Dr. Hawks observed in many cases that grandmother was bringing in more food for the little ones than were their mother. Because the mother is preoccupied, pregnant, nursing, and so on, but the grandmother, she's out She's finding the tubers and other foodstuffs to bring back to keep the kids alive. Now, you might say, oh, that's hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. How's that relevant to me? Well, the anthropologists, bless them, have done some fascinating research for us. They have looked at the uh, documents of the uh, French-Canadian peoples of the 17th century and determined that in that pre-industrial era, if a baby was born living close to grandma that baby was more likely to survive
0: incredible that's that's amazing
1: and that's true that was true also in pre-industrial norway anthropologists look further at uh, documents there and determined that if if the grandchild is living close to grandma the grandchild is more likely to survive and further interesting point a woman is more likely to have more children the closer she lives to her own mother, because of course mother supports the fertility of her daughter, so that the presence of a postmenopausal woman is shall we say good for the tribe, it is certainly good for the family, and if you think about it, the tribe is built around the family, and so postmenopausal women bring something of great value to their families and to their their tribe. And uh, Dr. Hawks and others are suspecting that this is why evolution has selected for postmenopausal life, that postmenopausal women are making an important contribution, even though we're, we're no longer reproducing, of course. But we're bringing something very important to the table.
0: Are we bringing wisdom?
1: Well, I tend to think that. But the scientists, you know, it's hard to measure wisdom, but they just look at, hey, who's surviving and who is not. And they're saying, yeah, if that tribe has grandmothers, the children are going to be more likely to survive. And evolution likes survival. So evolution seems to have selected for women to lose their reproductive capacity midlife. Women are intended, uh, if you think of it in evolutionary terms, women are intended to lose their reproductive capacity, and they are still nonetheless vital to the survival of the family and the tribe.
0: And we have many more decades from what I understand, or certainly more years post-menopausal, I think that's also, correct me if I'm wrong, evolutionary change that has occurred. So in fact, we have more time without worrying about responsibilities of motherhood.
1: Yes, these decades are a gift, not only to ourselves, but to those around us. If we apply ourselves to it, as Jung says, if we take up the responsibility of mature years, we have an enormous contribution to offer. And in good measure, that would be wisdom. So, yes, if the grandchildren are starving, we're going to be out there digging up those roots. No doubt that's in the nature of postmenopausal women. But at this stage, most of us aren't out there digging for roots, but we are providing guidance and wisdom to those around
0: us. Why do you think that older women get such a bad rap and that many in our culture don't honor our wisdom and the depth of our experiences? Oh,
1: fascinating question, isn't it? My goodness, we could talk for, for weeks about that one. Uh, in part, it's a, a social phenomenon I have a uh, great interest in, uh, as I say, anthropology and uh, evolutionary psychology. Feminist theorists give us the idea of the patriarchy and, the, you know, the emphasis on uh, the male, the warrior, and the masculine psychology and so on. But, you know, I'm a psychotherapist, so I'm especially interested in the way women sabotage themselves. Women are very prone to uh, self-criticism, self-judgment guilt and shame. And uh, they can become very burdened by their own minds. And you could say, oh, gosh darn, that's the effect of patriarchy and so on. But in the end, we're left with our own minds. And it's valuable to notice in what way you are handicapping yourself, uh, saying, oh, well, my opinion is not worth much anyway, or you're in the family situation and You know, you know there's something valuable to be said, and you hold back. Or, on the other hand, maybe you kind of give way to saying a whole bunch of good advice, but deep within yourself, you know that there's one important thing to be expressed. And instead of just giving a whole bunch of good advice, you learn to sit quietly within yourself and then speak from that deeper level. Again, that's also something we can cultivate within ourselves
0: and i'm assuming that we might be talking about other things about mindfulness but before we get there i just had a flash that not only can we be our worst enemies but it seems to me that some women can also put that on other women and so that we're not always supportive or that we can be so much more critical so instead of banding together and polling our experiences and our wisdom, that we can sometimes turn that against other women, which certainly doesn't work to anybody's advantage.
1: Thank you for such a perceptive comment, Jane. Yes, it's part of, uh, in the Jungian world, we'd say, the, the shadow of women's psychology in its modern form contemporary women not only have a tendency to a lot of self-judgment and criticism and shame and blame, but they will have a tendency to extend that to other women. And it's a kind of impulse in the society. Again, we can turn to the sociologist to tell us why the heck we have that impulse. But more to the point, as a as a mature woman, as you do expand into the, the uh, potential of yourself, you can recognize a little tendency to be harshly critical and
0: just don't say it. So what are some of the tools then that you might suggest for older women so that, A, we can avoid that kind of outward criticism, and more importantly, so that we can reconnect with our own truth and get rid of, if you will, uh, some of those tendencies to question ourselves, to question our wisdom, to not honor ourselves, not to mention other women?
1: Important question. Well, uh, of course, I will default to mindfulness because that is my background. I've been uh, teaching uh, medical programs of mindfulness for, I was counting it, 25 years. And, you know, I don't do so simply because it's of assistance to those I teach but uh, rather it's an expression of the, of the uh, importance mindfulness is for me. I am practicing mindfulness much of the time. In fact, yesterday you and I had some technical difficulties in setting up today's conversation, and that's my kind of alarm bell to sit and practice mindfulness even as I'm tending to important questions of a technical nature. Yeah, mindfulness is a, uh, is a wisdom practice, and we can get uh, a little confused because these days mindfulness is also a product that is being vigorously marketed. Uh, we're being encouraged to practice mindfulness, to make ourselves be other than we are, and we're encouraged to practice mindfulness because uh, it's the trendy thing to do and so on. But that obscures the fact that this, which we're calling mindfulness, and by the way, that word mindfulness is very new to the game. You can find it in the great wisdom traditions, uh, principally of Asia, but it could well be argued that you will find this in the mystical traditions
0: of all the great religions. Can you give us a definition, if that's possible, of what you mean by mindfulness? It's probably the most important question you can ask
1: about mindfulness because the word mindfulness has entered into popular parlance. So I like to point out that just a few weeks ago, I was at the supermarket and I saw a magazine that was advertising mindful kitchens. <laughs> you know, and I didn't open up the magazine, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's being used in marketing. But that doesn't need to be a problem to us if we really recognize what we are referring to when we use the word mindfulness. Now going to give you a definition I learned years ago at the Center for Mindfulness down at the University of Massachusetts. So here's a four-point definition. I think of bulleted points when I offer it. And even those listening to us you might if you're not driving or operating machinery, you could for just a moment ladies, even close your eyes if it's comfortable. And now, first off, we're going to do something on purpose. So that's our first point. We're going to do this on purpose. And our second point is we're paying attention. Do you notice that you're sitting here and you're paying attention on purpose? And thirdly, our third point is what you're paying attention to is what's happening right now. And I'm guessing that most of us listening to this broadcast What's happening right now is you're sitting. Do you notice the feeling of being here? You're sitting here, and uh, I would guess you're breathing too, of course. Your feet are somewhere, maybe they're on the floor, or you've crossed your legs. Do you feel all of that happening? Sure. And what else is happening? Well, some thinking is happening and some listening. You're hearing these words, and do you notice how your mind is making sense of what I'm saying? And you're probably having some thoughts in response to what I'm saying. It's all happening right now, isn't it? And I could even guess you're having some emotion or a mood. You could check in with that and notice it. And you could just sort of direct your attention around yourself. The feeling of sitting and breathing is happening and thinking and feeling. And the fourth point of this extended definition, the fourth point crucial, is your attitude. The fourth point is that your attitude is non-judging. Do you notice I'm inviting you to witness your experience without needing to judge it? We're not trying to make it be a certain way. We're not trying to change anything. We're certainly not trying to improve anything. You're just being a witness to your present moment experience. And in this way, oddly, each moment is new. Now you're feeling your feet. Now uh, maybe you've opened your eyes and you're looking here and there. This is mindfulness.
0: What? advantages are there to mindfulness? Why should we practice the four points? Yes, and
1: that's another question that we could even devote weeks to. You see, what we're looking at is human consciousness. Mindfulness is a, is a, um, a way of paying attention to the fact that you are conscious right now, that your life is happening right now, and you are witnessing it. And you are even witnessing the witness. And you're witnessing all the thoughts that are interpreting it. And you're also feeling this first breath happening now. This is consciousness. This is our human heritage. This is at the base of it all, this being human conscious right now. So then when we ask, well, what's the point? It's an enormous question. <laughs> but as a physician, longtime mindfulness teacher, I can point out to the hundreds of research papers now yes, hundreds of research papers that point to benefits from practicing mindfulness, especially regular mindfulness. We get in the habit of purposefully practicing mindfulness. We may find that our pain will lessen, or that our mood will improve, or that our anxiety will become less frequent and so on and so on. It may improve our family relationships. Uh, Many different benefits.
0: And how does that differ from another practice that gets a lot, a lot, a lot of attention, and that's meditation? I mean, let's just take TM or Transcendental Meditation as an example, something that I've practiced from time to time, and it seems to me that because you have a mantra to return to, which is generally a word, that you are to bring your thoughts back to that word. So here's a way in which now that I'm thinking about it, we are changing, aren't we? We are changing. We're trying to calm the mind and push all those other thoughts and feelings back to saying a word or a phrase.
1: Oh, yes. I'm enjoying our conversation. So many interesting things to ponder. The word meditation is a a big word. I I liken it to the word athletics. There's many ways to be an athlete. Many ways. You know, we could kind of leave that word aside. And we could just talk about those disciplines or those practices that focus on how we are paying attention. How are we focusing our attention? And in this example of mindfulness that I offered you, I think you'd agree that what we were doing was focusing on our present moment experience without needing to judge it or change it. But we didn't even need to stop the judging. If there were some judging thoughts, if you're sitting there and thinking, geez, I shouldn't have my legs crossed like this, you notice, oh, I'm criticizing myself for Crossing my legs, and maybe at that point you even uncrossed your legs, and that was all done in mindfulness. By contrast, there are meditations where we do focus, in particular, to, as you say, a mantra, and uh, also we can even focus to looking at a a sacred picture. Or in mindfulness, we very frequently focus to the experience of breathing. Maybe we're caught up in thinking about this or that. We're being mindful, noticing my mind is so busy. And you you just decide, this is part of mindfulness, you just decide, I'm going to feel this breath happening right now. So that there is this quality of intentionally focusing even in in the open awareness of mindfulness. All of us mindfulness practitioners, we will, from time to time, uh, maybe even frequently in a given practice, we will focus, and very often that will be a focus to the experience of breathing. And if we were moved to do so, uh, we might even insert a mantra. Maybe you're paying attention to yourself breathing and you insert the word calm. So with every out breath, you're just feeling how it is to breathe out, and that uh, you let the word calm resonate as you're breathing out or maybe the word calming might be more useful so you're resonating a mantra this is all in your imagination of course we call it imagery you're just inserting an image the mantra calming you're feeling the sensations of your body breathing and you're also experiencing the word calming you're not trying to make something happen there's no goal involved But you have, shall we say, tossed in a mantra, and you're letting that mantra kind of resonate with every breath, and you're being
0: present, being present. So we don't have um, a teacher, for example, telling us, inhale five times, hold your breath, then exhale four times, or reverse that, and Inhale four times and hold your breath. I'm not even sure I reversed that there. But there seems to always be somebody else who is guiding us. And, of course, I understand the goal is to be able to do that on our own. But that seems very different from taking a word like calm and encouraging us within ourselves to be calm, whatever that might entail.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, This isn't my first rodeo, as they say. I have been practicing meditation and hatha yoga and tai chi and so on for decades. And so I've had numerous wonderful teachers, sincere teachers, who've transmitted to me their way of doing things. And I have participated with more or less enthusiasm. I've undertaken five breaths and then out-breath of two, and all this type of thing. I've done it. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, if you find something like that that so-called works for you, it brings a, a measure of calm or peace or settles the mind, and it continues to do so reliably through the years and decades ahead, I would encourage you to continue with that. But I would further offer that what we're pointing to here, at least I hope what we're pointing to, is at your essence, This is at your human essence. And all these various strategies and techniques are pointing to this at your human essence. They are in themselves not the essence, but they are pointing to it.
0: I wanted to get back because you've used a word and it's one that I think about. And that's the word judgment and self-judgment. And we talked about that in terms of wisdom. I were hinting at that now with mindfulness and unfortunately before we have to end the conversation I'm wondering what you might have to say about judgment of ourselves and judgment of others
1: thank you Jane you're really ringing the bells here <clears throat> yes <laughs> ding, yes ding. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I, and uh, you know I've been teaching mindfulness such a while you're not surprised to learn that The question of judgment's a big one. After all, that's what I said in the fourth point of my definition, a non-judging attitude. And I like to to point to things here, is to point out the difference between judging and discerning. Ah. I mean, I can look outside and I discern that there's a violent snowstorm occurring. And I can um, start to think about climate change, and I'm judging this and that and so on. Or I could just notice that a violent snowstorm is occurring, and right now my mind is very angry, and I'm thinking about climate change. And there is a subtle but significant difference in that. Did that make sense?
0: Yes, my tendency would be to look outside and see there's a violent snowstorm and say, Oh my God, it's so cold. I'm going to have to wear my snow boots. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to to get my car out of the garage. Yes. It's dark out. There's no sun. Yes. (laughs) You can be mindful of it all, including unhappiness and
1: sadness. You see, mindfulness is not about improving the situation. Although the paradox is if you practice mindfulness and it becomes part of your life, by gosh, you'd swear that things do improve. And that's, well, that's Jungian, is that consciousness is valuable. Consciousness brings something, uh, but it's not your will to make things be different. Now you're describing, yes, and it happens to me, this winter is happening a lot. I look out and I can have a mindful experience of seeing the weather conditions and having hostile thoughts about climate change and then also apprehension about how am I going to deal with this. And I can be mindful of the whole experience. Mindfulness is your present moment experience, however it presents itself. And that's the risk for us mindfulness teachers these days is that mindfulness is being marketed as a technique or a tool to uh, make things be different. It's a technique or a tool to calm down and, you know, uh, become more loving and generous and all these things. And, you know, sometimes you're practicing mindfulness and you're having anything but loving thoughts. Maybe you had a disagreement with your neighbor and you go into practice mindfulness. You have a formal sitting meditation, as we say, you're practicing mindfulness, and you're aware of the rage you experience towards your neighbor. And that's mindfulness. I've been there. (laughs) And there's a difference between drowning in the thoughts or witnessing the thoughts. But uh, these days, what I'm primarily focused on is instructional groups. And I am presenting groups based around what we call mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR. That's the acronym. And I like MBSR. Well, gosh, I've taught it 25 years, and I like it because it's, um, shall we say, science-based. All the research that I was uh, mentioning there is looking at the outcome for participants in MBSR groups. What happens to people who attend MBSR groups? And uh, we see lots of evidence that they have fewer migraines and better sleep and so on and so on. So I like MBSR because if I if I present it skillfully to my participants, uh, they very often at the end, they, they say thank you and it was very useful for them, even though what they so-called got from it could be very different. Because I'm very careful and it's so good now that I'm no longer a physician, so to speak, I'm just a helper or a coach I am teaching mindfulness to just be of general assistance to women, to help them boost their optimism and their um, perseverance without saying, hey, this is going to help your migraines or it's going to help your sleep, even though the research is there. But I just teach mindfulness. But I do it in a very particular way uh, in this format of uh, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction.
0: Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Yes. Certainly something we all can use in this very stressful, confusing world in which we live. Can you please tell people how they can get in touch with you, how they can find out about working with you in terms of sleep issues and also in the MBSR.
1: Yes. Fundamentally, I would invite people to sign on to my email list. And that's a very pleasant experience, I hope, at least for most of you. You can sign on by going to lucindagift.com. That's easier to remember. Lucinda Gift, just my first name and the word gift.com. And you will immediately be sent a copy of my little e-pamphlet called Happy Sleep Secrets. So it's uh, information, science-based, but emphasizing the value of pleasure and beauty for women in the second half of life, helping them to sleep more fully and richly. And by getting a copy of Happy Sleep Secrets, you will be on the email list and I'll be sending information. The group that you are referring to, Jane, the Mindful Women 50 Plus, uh, we have a little website for it, an information page, really. Uh, That information page is mindfulwomen50, mindfulwomen50 mindfulwomen50.com.
0: Once again, it's always fabulous to talk to you. I'm honored to have you as one of my guests. And I don't know, I'm probably going to have people knocking on my door saying we need to have Lucinda back again. So hopefully that will be a possibility. Thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. And thank you
1: for your work. We're pointing to the wealth within us as older women.
0: It's there. We're going to find it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Older Women and Friends. And speaking of friends, please tell yours. And if you're interested in reaching me with comments or suggestions, you can do that by emailing me at Older Women and Friends Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out my blog at 70andme.com and that's 70, the letter N, me, 70andme.com. Until next time.